right, everyone. Welcome to the Ad.Podcast. I'm happy to have with me today Asanka Abhisingha, and uh, he's the CTO of the company WSO2. I'll let him tell you more about the intrigue of the company name. It shows their long history. And he is, yeah, the CTO there, um, I think recently appointed CTO and has been with the company for a long time. So he knows uh, the history. And so welcome to the podcast, Asanka. Thanks, Juan. And uh, thanks for the invitation. And it's a pleasure to be in your podcast. Yeah, I'll give a quick background about me as well. Uh, so I'm coming from uh, uh, application architecture and application development background and started my career as a COBOL programmer, then moved to C++, Java, like that, uh, when the evolution of uh, technologies happened, and mainly focused on distributed computing for last 20 plus years. So I've been with WSO2 for more than 15 years now. Uh, So WSO2 name coming from uh, oxygenating web services, uh, because uh, we started the company when uh, web services were uh, dominating uh, SOAP and uh, various type of uh, web services standards. And the founders coming from that background as well, Sanjeeva and Paul, they uh, contributed to many web services specifications as well as uh, we implemented foundation for web services uh, by uh, contributing to Apache Foundation. Uh, So that is how the uh, company started. And from day one, we are following uh, open source standards and uh, contributing to open source. Uh, So that is our uh, DNA inside the organization. Uh, So that is how everything started. But what we did basically uh, looked at what's really happening in the technology, as well as uh, what's really happening in the enterprises and augment the products fitting to the technology as well as something that is very um, useful for these organizations and change the product architecture and the delivery of the product accordingly. So what's it like to be CTO now? Has you were before sort of like chief, what was it, chief evangelist, developer evangelist and platform evangelist and now CTO. Can you tell us the difference between your role? Yeah. I, so before I took the uh, seat, uh, the, uh, the chief evangelist role, I was the deputy CTO uh, as well as uh, I was lucky to work really close with uh, uh, two great CTOs. Uh, Paul Fremantle was the uh, uh, first CTO, and then uh, I had the chance to work with Eric Newcomer. Uh, I got a lot of uh, insights from them, as well as uh, from the uh, WSO2 customer uh, portfolio. I closely work with many CTOs, uh, as well as uh, technologies like you uh, in the industry. So gathered a lot of information and then insight during my uh, 20 years of experience. And it was a gradual move, I would say, not an overnight uh, role change. Uh, So uh, I think the environment uh, prepared for me to take this uh, new role, uh, as well as uh, still I'm getting a lot of support from uh, the system as well. Uh, So it's challenging uh, because we are a sizable company. And then a lot of responsibilities. Um, and I'm currently mainly focusing on the external architecture of WSO2 and uh, helping uh, customers uh, a lot, as well as bringing uh, 
uh, customer feedback into the product teams, uh, as well as still uh, the evangelized, evangelist role is still remains because I tell the WSO2 story, as well as uh, uh, working as a spokesperson by speaking at many events, as well as uh, regularly updating the industry analysts. Nice. Thanks for explaining your past and current role. Seems uh, like natural steps, and that's good. So WSO2 is currently leading in you know the, their business, your business, with um, two pretty you know like significant, even maybe a little bit revolutionary takes on things. Like okay, you have your own programming language now, which I don't know if this is really true, but I saw some years ago that that uh, someone said that it, it costs like a billion dollars to bring a new language into the market, which, whoa, you know, a billion dollars, that, that's some deep commitment. <laughs> and, and then uh, your Corio platform is quite interesting. It's not just cloud, it's cloud with some very, I guess, opinionated, you know, approaches to software development, which is good. And I've talked with uh, Sanji and others there with you about it. And I know that you have this sort of mindset about how things should be done. And that's good because I think people need that kind of leadership, you know, to really help them zero in on, okay, here's an opinionated way to do this. If you follow this way, we know that it works and we can help you make it work and you're going to be good, right? So I would say that's sort of like the overall message for, you know, at least from an outsider looking in. Is that sort of what you're thinking? Yeah, I think you framed it nicely. Uh, so yes, we took some uh, risk and uh, challenges as well when introducing uh, the programming language as well as uh, the Corio platform. Uh, so uh, reason for that, uh, we operate based on first principles um, and we identify the first principles based on what exactly the industry looking for and then how we can uh, uh, um, in how we can introduce something uh, useful for the industry uh, because uh, our motivation coming from uh, uh, the day one as a middleware company to simplify this uh, creation of various distributed uh, computing components and now we uh, tell it as uh, how you can easily create digital experiences because end of the day every organization is building some kind of digital experience internally or externally. So as a technology provider, uh, that's our responsibility, how we can simplify it, how we simplify it basically by creating great abstractions. So that's where uh, all these things uh, came into the picture. And I, I first touch based on the ballerina language and then come to Corio. So ballerina, we started uh, in 2014. Basically, what we identified, uh, the uh, the configuration-driven integration uh, is working at that time, but then again, it has limitations. Uh, so how we can find a way to overcome that uh, particular hurdle? Because a lot of uh, customers and users were using our integration technologies, and we did many experiments and identified the best way to solve this problem uh, by introducing a language. So that's where uh, Ballerina came into the picture. At the same time, uh, by coming from this uh, web services routes, we identified it is not easy to do network programming. 
because there's a lot of uh, things underneath. You need to know about HTTP and then you need to know, know about how the network works. And then there are a lot of quality of services around that, like security governance associated with these uh, programs that you write. So how we can simplify it for the programmer and then uh, uh, let the developer to focus on the business problem rather than uh, going to these uh, underneath uh, technical um, complexity that they had to face when they are developing a language. So that was the motivation when we introduced um, Ballerina language. Uh, as you said, yes, it's a, a big investment. Uh, we have more than 100 people full-time working on development side and many other roles in developer relations and uh, various other activities associated with the language. Uh, so it's a uh, investment but uh, we are seeing a lot of success uh, with the investment we have done uh, because even ballerina listed as the uh, 22nd uh, language in the language listing uh, even getting to a language listing is not easy but uh, getting that position is a great achievement that we see uh, so that is the uh, uh, background and how ballerina came into the picture i think uh, the same uh, semantics apply for Corio as well. Uh, so we were helping organizations to build platforms like uh, large organizations invest a lot, put around 300, 400 uh, development teams and start building these platforms uh, to uh, simplify the stuff internally as well as increase the productivity. But this is a never-ending task for these organizations and they were not focusing on how they can deliver applications or value for the business. And this was a problem we identified. So what we thought rather than uh, letting each and every enterprise to build these uh, platforms, why don't we provide an opinionated platform that they can build their business uh, abstractions or uh, business applications on top of that? So that is how Corio came into the picture. And uh, yes, it's an opinionated platform because we want to uh, give the best practices as well as uh, some of the uh, uh, productivity enhancements within the platform. That's why we make it in such way uh, so an organization can get into the platform and then uh, quickly build applications. And our uh, tagline for that is just add developers. So what we are telling, just add developers and we will take care of the uh, rest of the problems and the complexity that you will see in the platform. Yeah, I think that that's a very good way to develop a major business strategy or a few uh, different uh, strategic initiatives because it came about organically, right? You didn't, it's not like Sanji and a few people went away on a retreat for a weekend and came back and said, I know, we know what we need. We need a new language and we need a platform and everybody's going to love it, right? Um, exactly. So, so the needs of customers, of clients drove this and it wasn't um, small time players, but I mean, 300 teams, that's you know, I don't know what size the teams are, but even if it's five people, you know, to 10 people, that's pretty significant. So yeah, very respectable uh, way to go about this. Now, I'd like to rewind a little bit because, okay, we have this introduction to Ballerina Language and Corio, the platform, but let's talk about architecture for a moment. You've um, done a lot of work in architecture, and I think that your ideas around cell-based architecture are quite interesting. So 
let me just ask this. Can you provide a basic introduction to cell-based architecture and explain how it differs from other architectures like maybe ports and adapters, hexagonal? Yeah. Uh, so uh, again, uh, I introduce it with the same uh, uh, first principles because we identified there's a gap in the industry uh, and uh, uh, as a solution, uh, introduce the cell-based architecture. So uh, it has a lot of parallels to some of these existing architecture styles. And I would say it is enhancing uh, some of the architecture styles like uh, event-based architecture as well as uh, a microservice architecture. So difference basically uh, about uh, the cell-based architecture, uh, how you can uh, group these uh, uh, workload, so I call it as a component. The atomic unit inside the uh, cell-based architecture is a component. How you can group it and then give some flexibility on grouping as well. Like uh, organizations can pick uh, a different type of uh, methodologies to define the cell boundary, uh, as well as another unique aspect of cell-based architecture is the cell gateway. Uh, so the concept also came with the uh, system biology and how a membrane work in a, a biological cell, uh, the same concept I brought into the cell-based architecture, uh, like a membrane is uh, controlling a biological cell, uh, the cell gateway controls the entire communication of uh, the components inside the cell as well as uh, the um, communication in between cells as well. So it's basically a inter and intracell communication controlled by this gateway. So that way uh, the organization can build a proper secured communication layer by defining northbound, southbound, eastbound, westbound type of uh, uh, communications as well as secure them. Another thing that uh, I identified as well as intentionally putting the architecture uh, a way to connect design, development, and deployment. Because that is one problem that I identified. The designer or the architect will architect something and developer will develop something slightly different. And DevOps will go and deploy something completely different. So there's no connection there. So how we can fix that problem is one uh, thing that I, I wanted to address when defining the cell-based architecture. In this architecture style, the cell is that particular unit uh, that you design. And then cell is the unit that you develop as well as cell is the unit that you deploy. So that way there's no surprises when it comes to uh, the production system versus what we put in the blueprint. So that is uh, another unique aspect um, that I can highlight in the uh, cell-based architecture. Another thing is uh, the uh, how it aligns with the organization structure. Uh, because uh, another issue I identified in uh, uh, large enterprises, uh, the concept of two pizza teams were there, but there was no proper way to define the two pizza teams as well as how you can give architecture boundary as well as how we can give development boundary and deployment boundary for these two pizza teams. And sales providing that aspect as well, uh, so organizations can easily uh, fit in their uh, structure, organization structure, or the development team structure into the architecture by using uh, cell-based architecture. 
So when did you start sort of, when did you kind of recognize this uh, cell-based architecture as a, as a pattern? When did you sort of, you know, frame in your mind that this is uh, what you'd like to do? Yeah, uh, the idea came around 2016, 2017 timeframe by looking at uh, various things enterprises were doing. Initially, I called it as a segmented architecture uh, because uh, uh, what uh, I saw inside the enterprises, some of the development teams, they are creating segments inside the central deployment uh, infrastructure and then trying to take control out of it. So that was the motivation came. And then I uh, looked at how we can um, map it to architecture uh, concept. At the same time, Uber released this uh, Death Star uh, architecture diagram. And that was another motivation for me. Like uh, we can't have this type of uh, uh, ungoverned and un- uh, and very messy uh, architecture inside an enterprise. So how we can find a solution. So I started working on this for around two years and Paul Fremantle, who was the CTO at that time, uh, worked with me on this paper. And in 2018 summer, I released the 0.7 version of the uh, the uh, uh, architecture paper. That was the first public preview. Uh, I released it under Creative Commons and then got a lot of feedback uh, since I Released it under Creative Commons. I got uh, uh, commits, uh, sorry, uh, pull requests from uh, various uh, industry leads as well uh, because I put it as a uh, put it on Markdown and then make it as a uh, inside Git. Uh, so uh, uh, got a lot of feedback, and then in 2019 uh, fall, I released the uh, 1.0 version of the architecture paper. Interesting. The reason I ask is. Um when I, you know, I think about prior art, I've seen people or heard people refer to cell-based architecture as what Uber refers to now as DOMA. Yes. And and I, and it's interesting that you bring up the Uber Death Star architecture. I actually, this is the first time I've heard about that. Can you explain what that is so that we could even see, it sounds like they could have been influenced by your paper to move out of that. So can you tell us about the Death Star? Yes, Uh yeah, so the, the Death Star architecture, basically uh, what happened uh, when microservices uh, came as a mainstream uh, way of development, people didn't look at uh, it from the architecture point of view. They started dividing this uh, uh, the logic into small components and start writing uh, these uh, microservices across the organization. And then uh, it started uh, having... Hundred of microservices, thousand of microservices into many uh, inside the organization and connected with each other. And uh, nobody knew what is the dependency between uh, each and every microservice as well as who's the owner of uh, a microservice. And it created a, a huge mess inside the organization. That's where the Death Star architecture came. Uh, it's really hard to identify um, 
uh, where the communication flows are going and how you can fix a problem because the dependencies were too much. So that's the uh, story about uh, the uh, Death Star architecture. And the uh, DOMA or Domain Oriented Microservice Architecture came um, three, four years after uh, I introduced the self-based architecture as well as uh, uh, the person who led that team is a good friend of mine as well. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, very, very cool. So, yeah, uh, cell-based architecture slash DOMA is, um, yes, you have microservices, but there are layers of sort of categories of microservices, right? So you have the the business kind of services sort of up top, if you will, like if you think in layers of services, independent services, not layers within a single service, but layers of services, you've got the businessy things here, and then the sort of coordinated things that those are using under it, and and then um, so, and then kind of leaping to the bottom because who knows how many layers you might need. But going to the bottom, you now have technical microservices that are um, taking care of things like security, persistence, and and so forth. Right. Exactly. And I think uh, the when microservices came into the picture and people started uh, writing microservices, uh, this uh, inner architecture and out architecture. I think today we call it as the control plane and the data plane. Uh, So those things were not there. Uh, So uh, people just started writing the uh, inner architecture or the data plane stuff without uh, focusing on the control plane. I think now it has gone to a great extent and uh, improved a lot. Uh, so we see uh, organizations are properly uh, using it. And that those are some of the uh, foundational principles we apply for our Corio platform as well, how you can have a proper uh, data plane and a control plane and then manage uh, this uh, environment for people to just come and write services and the platform uh, manage all the uh, other quality of services and dependencies. Yeah, now I'm going to just name two companies that this, the Death Star architecture, or what I would actually call the distributed big ball of mud. That's the idea. Everything is connected to everything else. You don't really know where the dependencies are. And essentially you have to leave everything running. If you unplug a service, you don't know what you're going to crash, right? You, you literally say, okay, we are committed to running this service for the lifetime of the platform, whether it's being used still or not, or just occasionally, or we don't know, right? It it reminds me a bit of at least the early Netflix. And then also uh, some years later, I saw this Monzo bank in in Europe. And maybe you've seen that article where they, or blog post where they have um, the, it it actually looks like the Death Star, you know, it's a circle with um, 1,600 1,600 microservices all like interconnected. And it is, to me personally, it's frightening looking. It's like, how how can anybody reason about this? And yeah, I don't know. So is that that sort of what you're... Exactly, exactly. So so that is uh, what I saw as well as uh, one one thing. uh, We need to understand every company is not Netflix uh, or every company is not Uber uh, because sometimes uh, enterprises are just trying to copy what they are doing. Uh, but their problems are very specific for their domain as well as they have enough technical uh, 
people to manage and uh, uh, run these type of uh, systems so that's where the uh, the uh, simplicity and how we have to pick the uh, the correct uh, architecture as well as implementation is very important for the enterprises because uh, end of the day whatever we are doing at the technical level uh, required to translate into value uh, into the business uh, so that's where uh, we think that we have to carefully look at what these organizations are doing get the best practices no issue but then again uh, don't copy uh, exactly what they are doing because uh, it will lead into a lot of complexity and that's why we see recent uh, changes of cios in many organizations because uh, end of the day it's uh, just technology not the uh, business value delivered by uh, these teams right and of course that's where you know my constant signal is the business matters and all technology should support the business uh, purposeful architecture right so yeah, yeah do, does everybody need cell based architecture it sounds like the companies that you're um, working with do can benefit from it. They may not have as many layers of these, you know, individual service types as Uber or Netflix or whoever, but, um, or, well, I should say Uber because I don't know what Netflix is doing now, but, but with, with Doma, but you can still benefit from it. And I think this is where you like to think in terms of domain-driven design. How is cell-based architecture used with domain-driven design or domain-driven design with cell-based architecture and how do they sort of help or complement each other? Yeah, so I'll connect the dots and there's a connection between uh, how I get to know about you as well uh, with this story. Uh, so when I designed the, uh, the uh, cell-based architecture, I didn't directly map it to domain-driven design uh, because uh, I read the big blue book of uh, domain-driven design uh, some time back and I didn't like it because um, the things have changed and then it is more about object orientation. So I left it, uh, the concept for a while. Then at uh, one of the events, I believe Nordic APIs, I did the cell-based architecture presentation and then uh, one of the guys from a university who was running IT division in a university came to me, uh, walked to me and said, great presentation, great concept, nice architecture style. Uh, this uh, directly map into domain-driven design. Did you look at it? I said, no, I tried, but uh, uh, I didn't like the concepts. Then he said, you should go and read Vaughn's book and then recommended uh, your domain-driven design book. And then uh, I immediately uh, got my Kindle and then uh, bought your book and uh, start reading it. And it gave me a different perspective of domain-driven design fit into where we are today and then how we can apply it to current uh, uh, design issues that we have. Then I was thinking how this is relevant because one question came to me from uh, a lot of people how I can define the cell boundary. Then uh, the, this was kind of a very lightning thing for me because a domain or a subdomain can easily map into the cell. So that is how uh, the connection uh, uh, worked uh, between domain-driven design and the cell-based architecture. And now 
the most of the organizations uh, using uh, uh, the cell-based architecture, they define the cell boundaries using domain-driven design and uh, either it's a subdomain sub or a domain. And uh, I recommend everybody to read your uh, book as the uh, uh, foundation to get the idea. Wow, thank you. Um, actually, I think maybe you told me a little bit, but this is sort of the first time I heard the, the whole story of that. And I've always enjoyed, you know, since I think we met, maybe it was three years ago. or Yeah, it's or around so. three years. Yeah. yeah, maybe right when COVID was relatively new, I think we met online. And I've always enjoyed, you know, our discussions. So thank you for, I'm glad the book helped and thank you for recommending it to others. So where do you see the, the overlap between the two then, DDD and cell-based architecture? Where is DDD mostly applied in cell-based and where maybe even where it's not so applicable? Uh, I think it's uh, basically, I would say, apply a lot because uh, uh, that gives the organization to find a way to define the cell, the foundation uh, to find the cells as well as uh, using the bounded context. uh, You can define what type of uh, communication that you should allow in the cell gateway. So it's a nice uh, way of uh, getting into the cell-based architecture as well as how you define the cells as well. And then one thing I saw as well as uh, I identified from your content as well, uh, when the organization looked at um, uh, the way the communication happens, I think this is defining the Conway law as well. Uh, if they map the organization communication into the uh, uh, this application structure and define domains, that is very effective. That is something I found when people are doing effective domain-driven design. And when you translate that into cell-based architecture, it even takes to the next level. Now you have the correct uh, granularity and then you can define the microservices properly. And most importantly, you can give the responsibility to maintain this uh, microservices inside cells to the relevant groups who will... Uh, like uh, enhance their knowledge on that particular domain and start providing uh, the uh, capabilities to the organization. Then the reusability will go high and the productivity will go high and they will keep on looking at how I can improve uh, that uh, capabilities that I am providing from that particular domain and start building this concept of a modular enterprise or some uh, call it as a composable enterprise. So the End goal is that uh, uh, there's no end game, but I think uh, the uh, the north star is that how we can get into that level of composability inside the organization. So I would say these two uh, concepts are uh, helping each other a lot, and then they are aligning. And I'm keeping an eye on uh, what's really happening in uh, the domain-driven design side as well, and keep on um, improving the architecture style fit into that. Nice. So would you say then that roughly speaking, a bounded context maps to a cell? Is that the general idea? Yes. Okay. Exactly. So then it's it's not a tiny thing. Like a cell is not necessarily a tiny thing. So it's not like you're deploying an entity in a cell. It's, I mean, you could, I guess, if that yeah. was, if there was some specific advantage to that, but that's not the goal. It's more like a relatively 
fine-grained business capability. Not <laughs> that's even you know if you think about saying like here's an example I'm I'm you know I have on my mind because I'm I'm working in in this. But you have um, white label insurance, right? So if you take the capability of white label insurance, so this is an insurance company that wants to white label. It's basically the a way to provide insurance, but to their agents, and the agents look as if they are you know, the actual insurance company or that they, they have an, ins- you know, their, their own insurance company. And so any of their customers, you know, to them, it's like, okay, that they're more than an agent maybe or something, but, it, but they're an agent. Now you take white label insurance, that's pretty coarse grain, right? I mean, that's like, well, what does that actually mean? But then if you decompose that into actual sort of functional business capabilities, like the the actual things that that have to make that up. I'm not talking about process, but just the, you know, so so you would have like underwriting, you would have risk assessment and generating a premium uh, for the risk and and then something to manage policies, something to manage claims. And so maybe it could be like that underwriting is a sell and rating is a sell. Okay. Exactly. I think you took a nice analogy and uh, exactly that is the way. And then it took my mind to a couple of uh, designs, uh, some of the uh, uh, companies working at the moment, uh, the same way uh, that uh, defined these uh, sales and then sell boundaries. I think there are a bunch of things. One is like uh, getting these domains and subdomains correctly, as well as another aspect on the API first approach, uh, because when you look at the type of APIs, uh, it gives another hint for the organization on defining these uh, cell boundaries and what type of uh, capabilities that they should expose from each and every uh, cell uh, internally or externally uh, as capabilities. Can you give some examples of companies that have used cell-based architecture and DDD and succeeded with it? Because I think uh, sometimes you look around, it's hard to find examples of it when you ask me, I can very rarely talk about companies that I work with or have worked with because it's all NBA. I literally cannot say their name, you know, as as, as having worked with them. Um, but you seem to be maybe more open to that. So why don't you tell us more about it? Yeah, I think uh, I had the same problem because uh, the some of these uh, uh, names cannot tell in public and I don't have the list that I can tell that I have the PR clearance. Yeah, it's it's just sa- it's safer to not say any names at all. But okay, so maybe industries and, and hints around that? Yes, so that that's a good one. Yeah, so uh, I think... Uh, Again, many industries like healthcare uh, is one major industry that uh, using the architecture style when they define uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, APIs as well as um, uh, applications that they uh, develop for uh, their uh, members. And uh, this came very mainstream during pandemic as well because uh, digital was the only way they could connect with the members. And we helped... uh, bunch of large uh, healthcare providers to do that as well as uh, financial industries utilizing it a lot as well especially when it comes to automation as well as how you can build digital experiences for uh, 
uh, end users uh, uh, Celbius architecture is utilized and telco energy those are two other sectors um, again a lot of uh, digitization digitization happening inside these uh, enterprises and they are uh, getting the benefit of service architecture to expedite uh, the transformation as well as how they can have a clean architecture and uh, how they can divide their teams into uh, two pizza teams. So those are a bunch of examples from uh, the industry. Okay, so we've gone into cell-based architecture. I think people have a means to have a pretty good background on it. If they want to know more, could you point them to the paper? Just search for Asanka cell-based architecture and it's online. Exactly. They will find the, uh, the uh, marked out document uh, in the Git repo and then uh, feel free to uh, uh, give feedback and then uh, improvements, criticize. So I'm happy to take the feedback and improve the uh, architecture paper. Okay, so now let's transition to programming language. I would say that JavaScript, TypeScript, maybe Python are sort of like used heavily in the cloud. And I would say Java, obviously Java and C Sharp, but we have some, you know, VM warm-up considerations with those, like depending on how your your architecture actually runs on in deployment, it could be expensive to start up like a Java VM, right? If it's not running hot constantly, which then costs money, right? So there's all these trade-offs. Um, so JavaScript and TypeScript, let's say, work well in that environment because there is no warm-up. But now you you see this, you're working with clients who are using, let's say, just let's focus just on those two languages. What do you see going on in cloud with those languages that Ballerina just is going to solve a specific set of problems that people have that they face with cloud? Yeah, uh, I think uh, now uh, when you take a language, uh, uh, the purpose, what they are doing uh, from that language uh, can be different. Uh, so Ballerina coming and playing a role, especially when they are building applications, like end-to-end applications starting from the data layer into the UI. Uh, so when somebody building that kind of cloud-native applications, that's where the uh, uh, Ballerina language giving an advantage on top of these other languages that you explained earlier. So I will give you a couple of examples. Now, the, when we are doing modern uh, application development in a cloud-native environment, data types are key. That we are dealing with the JSON, we are dealing with uh, uh, data coming from various uh, databases that we call as record sets. And then uh, XML is still used uh, uh, in somewhat because you can't just ignore the applications we developed during last two decades. So those type of... Uh, uh, data structures are first level citizens, so data types in the language. So the programmers, they don't have to import libraries. They don't uh, have to do marshalling and marshalling of these type of data uh, sets. So it's inbuilt within the language. Uh, so that is an advantage that uh, they get from the uh, data point of view. And then we have tooling embedded with that, like uh, data mappers, how easily they can map these data sets into different type of formats. And then another thing, like if somebody wants to write a service, 
they have to do a lot of stuff like they have to do HTTP binding and then identify the libraries related to that, secure them. All these things takes time as well as uh, once you have many libraries within that particular runtime, it becomes a really bulky uh, runtime. And then uh, there are two ways like you like uh, bind it and then the container will get really heavy or you add sidecars and then it will become many sidecars around the container. But if those capabilities are built in within the language, then you can get the uh, full benefit of a cloud native infrastructure as well as you can eliminate the uh, dependencies and make it completely immutable um, when these capabilities are within the language. So one thing I told some time back uh, is middleware is disappearing into uh, code and infrastructure uh, because uh, today you can't afford the way that you use middleware earlier. Uh, earlier days, we deployed the stuff into a server runtime and it works perfectly fine. But uh, in the today cloud native environment, you can't do that. So that's where I said the middleware is disappearing into a uh, code and infrastructure. Infrastructure part is very clear. I think Kubernetes is leading there and it won the war. And we are getting a lot of benefit from Kubernetes and Kubernetes services. And uh, it covers uh, up to a great extent of middleware capabilities that we got early. The rest is where the code coming into the picture. And that's where we embedded most of these middleware capabilities into the language. Now they can just write code and get the benefit out of the uh, 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 the the language itself and the, uh, uh, the the native capabilities provided within the language to be productive as well as easily develop these uh, network programs without worrying too much. I remember I, I did have this conversation with uh, you and Sanji at one point, and he, you know, I was talking about the importance of well-defined schemas for exchanging data, exchanging information across cells, let's say, and even the need for a schema registry. And I recall him saying, you don't need that. And I, I sort of, you know, I was like, well, I don't know. And he said, well, it slows people down. If you're using Ballerina, you know, it takes care of that for you. So it just, it understands natively JSON, let's say, let's just yeah. stick with JSON. So can you tell us more about, okay, what, what does the language do with JSON that makes it sort of unnecessary to um, worry about schema versions, right? Like, okay, this is the definition of this at any given time and the version that I depend on. How, how are you protected from those kinds of things with Ballerina? Yeah, I think uh, it is similar to the way we handle uh, uh, the COBOL copybook records, like you define the schemas there and then uh, use it inside the program. Same way a uh, ballerina type system works that you can define these uh, different type of schemas as types and then use it inside the program. And then the versioning of that particular service uh, is uh, the way that you define different type of uh, uh, schemas and that translate into the API provided from the service as well. So that API version and the service version uh, is uh, basically the way that you identify different type of uh, uh, schemas and schema changes. That is how the language is uh, designed and uh, implemented. Okay, so then what about, um, so that sounds to me like web service calls web service, right? That's sort of a 
natural way of thinking. And I submit with my HTTP request a JSON object. Um, how does it work when you're publishing domain events, for example? You, you publish events outside your cell and someone is going to consume those. How, how does it work then? Because I'm assuming they're now dependent on a schema version that that they don't necessarily, I guess they could define it, but which, which version are they consuming, right? How, yeah. how is that solved? I think that is solved by using the uh, developer portal because everything gets listed in the developer portal and then all these schemas are uh, listed there. So they see different type of uh, event sources and different type of uh, APIs in the developer portal so they can uh, get that uh, information from that. Uh, so the, the language, uh, basically the program or the service that you write uh, get uh, into the uh, get listed in the developer portal and that becomes the way how uh, developers communicate as well as identify uh, these different type of schema types. I see. So it is sort of in a way a schema registry, but maybe yeah. not as explicitly schema registry, but it's more like, I guess, a discovery mechanism. Yes. And then in Ballerina, let's say I'm a consumer of domain events, I I go to this, you called it... Um, a developer portal. I go to the developer portal. I I discover you know the availability of this service and this kind of event that is uh, published. And I can then say, okay, give me the Ballerina definition for that version of the event. Yes. So that's how it works because that... Uh, uh, sharing and uh, uh, intercommunication in between uh, different type of cells happen through that and uh, we treat it always as an API. It can be a request response or it can be an event-based API, uh, but uh, that's how the communication happens. Uh, within the cell, it's a service-to-service -service calls and it's a single team uh, so they can um, uh, use the same concept, but that visibility of those uh, service endpoints are within the team, not outside the team. Uh, the people outside will say uh, see only the uh, APIs that expose through the uh, cell gateway and that get published in the developer portal. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess it is a little uh, safer than I first understood from that conversation a few whatever it was, a year and a half ago or something like that. So I feel better now. <laughs> Thank you for explaining. Um, so, okay, now let's talk just a little further about the, the language in terms of, I guess, the is it a dynamic uh, type language or is it statically typed? And uh, I think it's a functional programming language. Yeah. Uh, so there is no mutability in the language. Exactly. So it's a functional language. And then uh, uh, it's not the dynamic uh, types uh, one. It's uh, uh, like uh, tightly coupled or static uh, uh, bindings are there in the types. And if they have to change it, uh, you have to recompile it and uh, with uh, containers and then uh, uh, container orchestration systems, we don't see it as a big issue because you can uh, redeploy something with a newer version without breaking the capabilities that uh, you got from the earlier version of the uh, program that you wrote. Interesting. Yeah, pretty amazing. It, it really does have a lot of cloud thinking, service thinking you know, built into it. And what do you hear about the pleasure of using the language like when people write ballerina are they like whoa this is really elegant it feels nice or you know i, I well i think you're going to say positive things but you know realistically are 
do people really love the language or is it sort of like, well, it does a lot of good things, but I, I wish it were differently expressed or something? Yeah, I think the people who's using the language, they love it. And personally, I love it as a developer because I do a lot of coding using Barina language. I think the uh, entry point is the issue because uh, languages are like religions for developers. Uh, so how you can get somebody to start a new language is a little tricky at some points. Uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, the co-pilot came into the picture and uh, with Copilot, uh, it is helping developers to learn a new language as well as be really productive. Uh, so uh, since we have uh, capabilities or tooling for VS Code, uh, we see that uh, adoption is getting increased and uh, people are getting really productive with uh, writing new languages. And another thing that I saw, people who's new to programming languages, they quickly um, get the concepts and then be productive. But uh, if somebody who's done uh, a lot of programming using uh, the object-oriented programming and those uh, traditional uh, concepts, they find it little difficult to understand the new concept. As example, my uh, uh, son, now he's 15, but he started coding ballerina when he was 12. Since it was a new thing for him, he was very productive within the language uh, because... uh, uh, he kind of got the concepts and even he uh, taught me some of the concept by telling, okay, this is an internal call, you should do this. And if it is an external call going out to the network, you should do it like that. So the, he got the concept nicely. Then uh, I was looking at it from more uh, object-oriented point of view. Uh, but uh, to answer your question, actually, the feedback is really good. And uh, we see a lot of community engagement uh, with uh, the language as well. Uh, so we have active Discord uh, channel and then uh, we are doing a lot of uh, community events as well. And uh, the meetups are back, like physical meetups are back after uh, pandemic now. So we are uh, going into different type of uh, communities through the meetups as well and evangelizing the language. Yeah, that's um, that's good. I I was at my first. Well, actually, I was at a public, you know, in-person event back in uh, November of 2022. But I just recently went to the Como Camp in Vienna, you know, in person. Um, we about a hundred people involved in that, and it went well. And you know, I've I've transitioned for. I think I even forgot to put my mask on on the flight back to the U.S. <laughs> I flew over with a mask and maybe not on the way back. I don't remember, but it's you know, it's just sort of feeling like, well, maybe I'm not going to get sick. And so, or maybe I need to be more careful. I don't know. So, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, it's it's a nice feeling. Well, let's transition then to Corio. So more, more information about Corio. Can you tell us just kind of first high level? Well, you, you already did a little bit, but you know, more like what's the programming or the DevOps interface? Yeah. So uh, if you look at Corio uh, and... Uh and take it as a full package, we position it as an internal developer platform. So that is the full uh, capability that provided by Corio. But if uh, someone is looking for just uh, SaaS API management, they can use it for just for that. And if somebody is using for uh, iPaaS or uh, uh, like uh, just for integrations, they can 
use Corio for that. If somebody is using to just write microservices or cloud native application development, they can um, use it for that as well as as a DevOps platform as well. So those are kind of uh, entry vectors that we would say uh, for Corio because sometimes uh, the requirement might be very specific. So the uh, internal developer platform might be uh, over uh, kill for that particular organization. So they can use these entry vectors to enter to Corio. But uh, the ultimate or the uh, main purpose of Corio is to provide this a complete internal developer platform and that it starts from the design and take application to uh, run basically and then maintain and get uh, the runtime observability and analytics so and so forth so that like in two and application development supported in Corio and then like uh, fundamental things like multi-environment uh, in built CI/CD I call it a, as uh, uh, like uh, uh, pipeline tuned uh, because uh, when you write the first code it is connected with the pipeline uh, so it uh, uh, takes that code from development into production and various other aspects like testing uh, code verification all these things are inbuilt um, as well as uh, it's SaaS but more than SaaS because uh, the control plane uh, providing a SaaS experience but you can connect your own um, PDP or the uh, uh, your data plane, a private data plane to Corio. As example, if you want to uh, use uh, GCP, AWS, or uh, Microsoft Azure, you can pick the relevant cloud provider and connect your PDP. As well as it's providing a multi-cloud uh, infrastructure as well. If you want to run multiple uh, PDPs or private data planes, you can do that. As example, uh, one of the healthcare providers that we are working with, they are using uh, GCP to run data-related uh, products or APIs, and they are using AWS to run uh, the compute-related uh, uh, workloads. So they use both PDPs and have a single developer portal to list all the APIs that they develop. So that is one uh, beauty of uh, Corio. As well as uh, if the organization is running a private Kubernetes cluster on OpenShift or uh, VMware Tanzu, they can connect that PDP into uh, Corio as well. So the current uh, requirement is a Kubernetes cluster. As long as you are on Kubernetes, you can support it. And we are extending uh, the capability to uh, other serverless platforms. And you can just uh, consume lambdas and Azure functions, uh, so and so forth in the future. So it is uh, basically... Uh, framing it as an internal developer platform with the correct uh, semantics because current internal developer platform definition only covering only covering the develop uh, uh, delivery part that uh, ci cd side of the story but we are adding application development on top of uh, this uh, delivery and making it a complete development platform uh, so organization can just focus on the application development and get the full benefit of the uh, platform by consuming Corio. So that, that's a um, very appealing, compelling platform, it sounds like. Now let's, um, this, this is a completely random question. I, uh, uh, when you say that it is SaaS capable or 
sort of inviting SaaS uh, development. Do you have subscription services built in? You have like payment services. Do you have multi-tenant somehow? Is that yes. sort of built into the platform? Yes, it's a uh, uh, multi-tenanted, and then uh, we have the concept of organization, sub-organizations within uh, the platform to do that. And the hierarchy comes like um, you have organizations, sub-organizations, then there's a concept of a project that directly map into cells. And then you have components that you develop inside uh, the uh, uh uh, particular project. Uh, so that is how the uh, structure works. And uh, we have uh, multiple models that you can uh, get into a pay-as-you-go model and it directly connect with uh, the payment uh, platforms. Or uh, if you are an enterprise, then we have uh, customized enterprise uh, packages that uh, you can pick based on uh, how you are uh, planning to use a uh, choreo uh, and uh, uh, based on that the uh, billing works so that's a complete uh, SaaS experience that we get and we see a lot of organizations they start with the pay as you go model and then uh, transition to uh, uh, the uh, enterprise model um, as well as we have fee- free tiers as well for the individual developers as well as uh, uh, somebody who wants to try out they can just sign up and uh, there's a limitation of number of components that you create but then again if it is a serious POC that they are working on we have some flexibilities on that Uh, as well as something we did uh, introduce the startup package as well uh, because we see startups can benefit a lot using such platform because they don't have to worry about um, platform engineering, DevOps too much. Uh, they can just get few developers and start building their idea inside uh, Corio uh, to encourage that we introduce uh, the startup package. And it's another uh, very popular uh, offering uh, in the community. Well, I am uh, quite interested. I, I know we've talked about, okay, I need, I need to use Corio and Ballerina um, sounds like maybe we should get more serious about it. Uh, now there 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 are a couple of SaaS problems in general. One is um, noisy neighbor, right? So in persistence, um, so you you're sharing a database and, and even you know a table or collection, and and you're basically striping it with a tenant ID, and you have some tenant that's. Re, you know, really using your service heavily, and you have another one who doesn't use it as heavily, and the the neighbors get you know pounded in performance throughput latency, yeah. um, you know, because of that one noisy or even a few noisy neighbors. How do you solve that problem? Yeah, so that's where the uh, concept of the uh, cloud data plane and the private data plane coming uh, on, uh, because the uh, cloud data plane, all this sharing happens among uh, uh, the tenants used in the cloud data plane. And uh, if somebody is running a serious business, our recommendation is to use the private data plane. That way, everything relevant for that particular user goes to their private data plane and it is not uh, affected. And the tenant uh, is basically the private data plane for that particular organization. So that is how uh, we are solving that problem. And um, small to medium enterprises can use the uh, control 
the cloud data plane, the shared one. Again, uh, they have a choice. Either they can pick uh, AWS or uh, Asia at the moment, and we will support GCP soon. But uh, the private data plane is up to the organization. They can even use their own uh, account and come and configure it with uh, Corio. So that is how we are uh, solving that problem. And you nailed it uh, correctly because that's a common issue that we see in many uh, uh, SaaS solutions. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I said two, obviously there are more, but these are the ones that really kind of stand yep. out. And the, and the second one is not just security, but as multi-tenant. So you have the ability to manage organizations. Do you, are there sub-organizations? And then, you know, in other words, groups and then users within groups and things like that. Exactly. So that same concept, we have organization, sub-organization concept, as well as uh, based on different type of uh, RBAC or role-based access control, you can uh, maintain different uh, groupings. And then the project concept is there to uh, separate workloads that directly map into cell architecture, as I explained. And then inside that, you develop the components. So the uh, organization, uh, they have the full control of uh, uh, the development environment and uh, different uh, type of uh, environments like test environment, production environment access, all these things can control. And one, another thing benefiting this with this remote work because uh, with remote work, organizations are looking for more governance, uh, how they can provide a self-service but govern the environment for the developers and Corio providing that as well. One uh, key uh, uh, capability as well as the interest uh, why organizations are using Corio. Well, an obvious question is um, after this, is developers are going to say, yeah, but what about vendor lock-in? And I have to say, if this suits you, better than AWS or GCP or Azure or whatever, like if it suits you, what's the problem? Okay, there, there's always going to be this issue of vendor lock-in. And, and then one fear for people might be, yeah, well, is WSO2 going to last? And you are a unicorn now. You've gotten, what was it, more than 100 million funding recently. And it sounds like uh, investors and, and uh, people are pretty into this and, and they're not going to just let WSO2 disappear. Yeah. So uh, uh, to answer that question, one, there's no vendor locking at all uh, because uh, they can develop uh, the components using Baranilla language or any other language. Okay. Uh, and we have this concept of a bring your own container. They can bring um, uh, any container and run it inside uh, Corio as well. End of the day, it's just a Git repo. So you write your code, commit to the Git, and then Corio will pick it. And if they want to go outside uh, Corio and deploy it, just take the code uh, from the Git repo, and then they can go and deploy it in any place that they uh, would like to run uh, the code. So that is uh, how the flexibility is there. And uh, uh, the bring your own container will improve the reusability of the existing work that they have done. And we are not envisioning everybody to rewrite everything using Ballerina. Uh, if you use Ballerina, you will get benefits and then advantages, added advantages of Corio, but uh, writing it from Node or any other uh, Spring Boot or whatever that they prefer to do uh, will provide the platform capabilities and they can still uh, stick to uh, the uh, languages that they are uh, working on. So that is how we have made it as an open system. Uh, so uh, 
uh, they have the flexibility to uh, go out from Corio and they run uh, the workloads at any point. So one thing uh, you mentioned about the mega clouds, why don't they directly consume the mega clouds and why they use Corio? Basically, even if you use a mega cloud, there's a significant amount of platform engineering uh, you need to configure it to the correct level. And we are getting that burden out because this is a pre-configured environment that you don't have to worry about getting uh, that configured, like getting all these uh, firewalls and then different type of security controls. Uh, basically, Corio is providing a zero trust environment that you can uh, start coding without worrying about this uh, deep platform engineering uh, activities. Yeah, pretty amazing, actually. So it's sort of like the way I think of Corio as being um, Netlify or Versal on with a lot of bling, right? But I mean, like there's what I, I, I know um, Netlify pretty well. And I have to say that they're a game changer, right? But I'm, I'm not very happy with their built-in um, security, you know, identity and access management, let's say. But then you go over to AWS and you've got, okay, you, you do have Bling over there, but you also have like not a great landing area to, to parachute in, right? So you're, you're, you're maybe uh, landing on some jagged rocks or mountaintop and you've got to find a way to, to get down to ground level without hurting yourself. And it just sounds to me like Corio is, is you just take those ideas and merge them up into this, um, wow, I can't, you know, someone pinch me. I can't believe this is actually available. Exactly. So that's what we exactly did, like identify these uh, gaps as well as uh, problems uh, these enterprises are facing and then uh, try to provide the solution uh, because we had the foundation, because we had the API management capabilities, integration capabilities, and uh, identity and access management capabilities from the our software side. And we took those as the foundation, as well as uh, we were doing uh, uh, managed cloud services for a long time for our customers and took that experience from the DevOps point of view. And um, we acquired a company called Platformer uh, two years back. Uh, so that uh, gave us a really good foundation for Kubernetes. And we put all these things together and build the Corio um, platform on top of that. So it's basically uh, productizing our 15 plus years of experience uh, by working with enterprises is what Corio provided. Yeah, this is very cool. I, I'm excited. I, I know now that I have to go try at minimum Corio, but I think I have to put a little time into Ballerina. But I have to tell you a little secret that um, I can think of about 10 people who would tell me right now, no, you're not going to do that. Right now, you have to get other things done first. So, But I am, I'm telling you this, um, I, I have to try it because just the whole idea of getting rid of the SaaS problems that you know exist and what you really want to do is have a nice application for people to use a nice you know software as a service to use and you don't want to go into all this subscription stuff and whatever i think this is really smart like why haven't other clouds provided this kind of thing you guys are are unique that's your at least one of your differentiating advantages and congratulations this is cool 
Thank you for the feedback and uh, we are looking forward to get more feedback from you once you try out Corio as well as uh, write some cool programs from Ballerina. Right on. Well, Asanka, thank you so much for joining in today. Is there anything else you'd like to... Oh, did I ask you about AI? I didn't ask you about AI. What's what's happening there? Just before we say goodbye, I think I got... I guess an interview these days is incomplete without something said about AI. I know that is a topic. And uh, yeah, so I'd say I, I think it's kind of a, a sandstorm at the moment. We don't know where it is heading, uh, but... Uh, there's a lot of positive side uh, that I see even as an individual. I am getting benefit uh, uh, of uh, using AI as an assistant for me uh, to do a lot of research work as well as uh, do some stuff that uh, I spend a lot of time unnecessarily. So the productivity has uh, uh, increased. Uh, so I believe the same thing will happen for uh, general public as well, how organizations will uh, use AI and then increase the experience of the individuals um, by providing or taking the digital experience into the next level. And uh, at the same time, there are regulations are coming and putting the relevant uh, uh, guardrails as well. That is good. Uh, so uh, uh, I think things are moving really fast. Uh, so overnight, a lot of changes are happening. And I think it's uh, uh, unbelievable, actually, some of these innovations are happening. And uh, living in the Bay Area, uh, what I identify, a lot of startups are coming up with uh, different type of AI uh, ideas and uh, failing their industry. Uh, so it's an interesting time. Uh, but I think... Uh, uh, the foundation is needed, right? You need APIs, you need integrations to um, uh, feed data into these uh, uh, language models. So still those basics are required and some uh, basics principles are coming back like API monetization because uh, we were looking at internal API management for a long time and external API management kind of uh, was there but not dominated too much. Uh, some companies like Twilio, they did it great, but not everybody. But now it is coming back. You can sell um, your capabilities uh, to these uh, language models using uh, uh, monetization. So uh, I'm taking this as very positive. Uh, as well as uh, as a product company, we are keeping a close eye on what's really happening and then trying to uh, integrate those capabilities uh, to the product stack. Uh, so one example, I would say we were speaking about citizen integration for a long time, how a business user can uh, do uh, build an integration with the UI. But while you use a UI, now you can tell the AI uh, engine to build an integration for you. We can easily integrate it into the product stack. So that is how uh, we are planning to uh, utilize some of these uh, uh, trends happening. But uh, uh, coming from the first principles, we will carefully watch and then bring uh, the necessary stuff uh, into the product stack without getting too much excited about uh, uh, things happening around. Yeah, I, well, this is probably a conversation that we need to continue on that topic when you when WSO2 figures out, okay, what makes sense for our customers, right? For Exactly. For, and so, yeah, let's hold that one as a, put a bookmark there. <laughs> <laughs> Great. As always, it's a real pleasure to have a conversation with you, Asanka. And I know people are going to enjoy this broad range of uh, 
architecture, DDD, and then um, how to implement, how to how to deploy and run. So thank you very much. Likewise, uh, Vaughn, thank uh, for inviting me as well as it was a great conversation and uh, looking forward to more conversations like this in the future. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.